May please stand for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors who one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You please be seated. I want to ask my dear friend Ashley Null to join me here. It is such a joy and privilege to have Ashley here this morning. Ashley is really hard to explain. And I have to tell you this, he is first and foremost an old friend. We first met in the mid-90s when I was living in London, and he looked after me. He was my chaplain, my personal pastor during that season. Uh, Ashley is a Reformation historian, one of the leading scholars on Thomas Cranmer in the world. He lives in Berlin where he does Reformation history. But he also is just a boy from Kansas uh, who has written on cowboy life in Frontier, Kansas. If you want to look it up, you can, I'm sure, find it on Amazon. Uh, I haven't read it. I'm don't, sorry. If you're not from Kansas, don't bother. Okay. <laughs> uh, Ashley also works widely within the Global Anglican Communion, uh, uh, particularly in North Africa and the Middle East. And he uh, also does discipleship work with elite athletes, uh, current and former Olympians. And my wife, Alicia, works for Ashley about 10 hours a week as a project manager, even though he's based in Berlin, Germany. As I said, Ashley's really hard to explain. He is, though, however, at the end of the day, uh, a man who loves Jesus dearly and serves the church broadly. Let me pray for him as he brings God's word to us this morning. Lord God, pour out your grace on Ashley. Teach us from your word. Encourage us by the good news of the gospel and be honored in this place. We pray for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Well, if you'll permit me to say a prayer, not because your rector's prayer was insufficient, 
but because I have a sin-sick heart and I always open up when I talk with this prayer to remind me of what it's all about. So if you'll please join me. Heavenly Father, we would see Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we would hear Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we would be moved to love and serve Jesus today. Amen. Ryder and Delaney, thank you so very much for giving me the privilege to be with you today on this very special day. I cannot but think of the rejoicing in heaven that you have come to know the love and light of our Lord Jesus Christ at the beginning of your life and that it will, it will sustain you through whatever comes and bring you to your everlasting home in his presence in the age to come. Coming to faith is a miracle and reminds us of the power of God still at work in this world today. So thank you for sharing that moment with all of us today. There is a wonderfully sobering story about John Stott. A young American came up to him and just gushed with praise. Dr. Stott, your books have meant so much to me. I can't tell you how important your work has been to my walk with Christ. If the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, and before the young man could finish his compliment, Uncle John cut him off with a very brisk British reality check. If you could see my heart as Jesus does, you would spit in my face. John Stott was one of the most spirit-mortified Christians I have ever known. At a time when American prosperity preachers were begging for donations from the faithful so they could live a luxurious lifestyle, Uncle John was earning a million dollars a year in book royalties, but living in a Spartan two-room apartment above a garage while he gave away $950,000 annually so pastors in majority world countries could have Bible commentaries to aid their preaching. John Stott was one of those rare Christian leaders that the more you knew him, the more you respected him. Yet he freely admitted that we would spit in his face if we knew his heart. And if that were true of John Stott, God help the rest of us. We live 
in interesting times, as the Chinese say when they want to curse you. In times of lawlessness, the church faces a double temptation. On the one hand, in times of lawlessness, the church is tempted to double down and preach law without the gospel. But Paul warns us that preaching law alone just stirs up more rebellion in human hearts. On the other hand, in the time of lawlessness, Christians are tempted to see the sin of others, but not our own. And John Stott's brutally British self-assessment of his sin is a reminder and a warning to us all. Thankfully, nothing could be more Anglican than understanding Christian discipleship as nothing other than an ongoing, lifelong commitment to regular repentance. After all, repentance lies at the heart of our liturgical life. Thomas Cramner's final founding liturgy has daily and evening prayer beginning with repentance. His final service for Holy Communion has confession, absolution, and the comfortable words right in the very center before the ancient call to lift up our hearts. Why is repentance so important to our understanding of human beings? Because like John Stott, Thomas Cramner had a very clear understanding of human beings. The human heart is the heart of the human problem. What word runs like a red thread throughout Cramner's communion service? Unto whom all hearts are open. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. Incline our hearts. Write all these thy laws in our hearts that with meek heart and due reverence they may hear and receive thy holy word. With hearty repentance, lift up your hearts. Feed on him in thy heart. And finally, Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and the love of God. Why does this run through our Anglican liturgy? Because the human heart is also the heart of all hope for human beings. According to early Protestant teaching, the human heart is ruled by whatever rules, sorry, Human nature is ruled by whatever rules the human heart. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. On its own, the human heart naturally loves itself more than God and other people. The will chooses those things which makes it feel good, and the mind would rationalize what we have done. In fact, the heart can often deceive the mind. 
People's insecurities commonly lead them to act in selfish, self-centered, and sinful ways, often without them even realizing it. According to the Reformers, the only way out of this closed circle of sin and selfishness is to discover a new, stronger, ruling love, a love for God instead of a love for self. Love does fill such a deep-seated need in our very souls that it has the power to move us in deeply unexpected ways, altering our priorities, sometimes even reorientating our whole world completely. For those of you who are married, remember that first year and all the adjustments that came as a surprise to learn how incredibly self-centered you were that you had never realized. But in the light of a love for someone else, you were willing to make the adjustments. The power of love to change us, even as it completes us, is the very heart of the meaning of human life and the hope of Christian faith. And it's the bullseye target for the enemy's attack on our hearts and minds. Ryder and Delaney, this morning you made several vows. Two of them I'd like to highlight and explain what they mean. You were asked, do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. What's that mean? We'll talk about that. And you were asked, do you put your whole trust in his grace and love? We'll talk about that too. From the very beginning, humanity's enemy has sought to separate us from God. And what is his game plan? to make us doubt that God really loves us, so that we have to then go out and find love on our own. That way we always feel like we have to constantly prove that we are worthy of being loved. The force of destruction at work in this world constantly whispers that we can only rely on ourselves to make us feel good about who we are. It constantly whispers, show everyone what you've got. Prove to them and to yourself that you're worthy to be loved. But no matter how much we do, it is never enough to satisfy that negative, nagging inner voice. No matter how much we use our talents to achieve, it's never enough to feel fulfilled. As a result, we always feel that we have something more we must do, something more we must prove.
And when we accept this treadmill as the nature of life, the devil's plan has worked. How about us? Has accomplishment led to a need for more accomplishments? John D. Rockefeller said it best, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money do you think it will take for you to be satisfied? He kind of paused and said, well, I guess always about a dollar more. You know, what's interesting about the devil, it's easy to predict what he's going to do because he doesn't change his gang plan because it usually works. That's why if we look at Genesis chapter 3, that game plan is literally as old as Adam and Eve. Let's take a fresh look at what it means for the evil powers of this world to corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. Step one in Genesis 3, the devil tries to plant a negative attitude in us. And his method is to get us to concentrate on what we don't have rather than what we do. Isn't that funny? No matter how much we have been given, no matter how much we have achieved, we seem to always concentrate on what we don't have. And what did the devil say to Eve? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Eve corrected the devil, no, no. No, just one tree. But now he has switched her focus, hasn't he? Not to an earth filled with things for her, but to the one thing that she has been denied. Eve, by switching her focus from the good things that God has given her to the one thing he has withheld, doubt creeps into her mind about God's goodness. Has the force of destruction tried to get you to focus on the things you don't have in your life? Like how unfair it is that you have to suffer for Christ, but other Christians you know don't. Or maybe it's failing to get that promotion. Or maybe he just gets you to fixate on your personal frustrations, like, not, like having a less than ideal family, not having the good things other people have, or maybe not having someone special who really cares for you. Whatever the reason, when you feel like you're missing out, that's the seed of a negative attitude. And when that seed is planted, he goes to the second step to get you to doubt God loves you, 
You don't look for love for someone who mistreats you, someone who withholds from you that which you think you need. You don't look for love for someone who is unfair. What is the universal child refrain? It's not fair. Because instinctively they trust if you love me, you will be fair. If God isn't fair, he must not love me. In fact, what does the devil do? He accuses God of withholding the fruit because he's afraid of the competition from Adam and Eve. Surely you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The force of destruction uses the same tactic with us today. Having pointed out all the problems in our lives, he says, if there really were a God who loves you, he would have given you a better deal. Have you heard that voice telling you that God is unfair because he hasn't treated you like you think you need to be? Well, once you have that attitude, then it's very simple to go to step three. The force of destruction undermines your self-esteem for who you are now. Once he's got you to doubt that God loves you, you've got to do something to earn love. And how does he do it? He just compares you to others. When that nagging negative voice compares us to others, it says, prove you are better, then you will have real value. Prove you have more, then you will be important. A comparison that we will inevitably lose because in this life, no one has it all. No matter how much talent or ability or success we have, there's always someone out there who has something we don't. And the force of destruction is always there trying to make us feel inferior by pointing that fact out. God made Eve along with Adam ruler over all the creatures he had made, but the serpent made her feel inadequate because she wasn't as wise as God. With people today, the enemy is always pointing out the strengths of others and saying, you aren't smart enough or athletic enough or good-looking enough, or rich enough, or popular enough, or witty enough, or enough of all of those enoughs to feel good enough about yourself, to be able to like yourself as you are. What's the purpose of New Year's resolutions, even if they're the same resolution year after year? They're a commitment to our failed attempts to be good enough so we can like ourselves.
Step four, the force of destruction convinces us to earn our self-worth. With God out of the picture, it's up to us to find a way to feel good enough about ourselves. We may not measure up right now, but we can someday. If we just use our abilities to make ourselves a success, then we will really be something special. Then we'll be just as good, if not better, than all the people who seem to be better than us right now. That's what the enemy told Eve. God might have been wiser than her at that moment, but if she would just use her common sense and eat the fruit, she could be really somebody important. She could be God's equal, not depending on anyone for anything. And when we buy into the lie, what do I tell Olympic athletes? Gold medals have to be earned. That's right and good. Love can't be earned. If it's earned, it's not love. Once we have bitten the apple, once we are committed to the idea that we have to earn love, we, the force then says, when you earn it, then you'll have lasting satisfaction. And doubting her own self-worth, but dreaming of how wonderful life was going to be, Eve bit, and so do Adam, and so do so many people today. Unsure of themselves unless they're winning, many folks dream of how wonderful it's going to be when they have finally achieved being the best, the very best. Isn't that one of the privileges of old age? We might not have the physical vigor of our youth, but we've lived long enough to realize it is a lie. <laughs> and achievements in themselves will bring lasting satisfaction. Doubting God's love for them led Adam and Eve to doubt their own self-worth. And when they tried to better themselves without God, they just made things worse. Their disobedience cut them off from God, and they felt naked as a result. Without God's unconditional love in their hearts, they discovered what it was really like to feel inadequate. In my view, what was their nakedness? Their souls were no longer covered by God's unconditional love. And what was their first response? To use those gifts and talents to cover themselves with fig leaves. And isn't that what we so often do? If you want to play Trivial Pursuit, here's a great question. What's the first shedding of blood in the Bible? Everyone goes to Cain and Abel. But what is the first act of God's grace that he does for Adam and Eve? He makes clothes for them out of leather, which means an animal has had to die to cover the waywardness of Adam and Eve's human heart because they were seduced in doubting God's love.
What comes first, the cart or the horse? What comes first, our step to God or God's step to us? What comes first, God pouring blessings out on us for which we then try to serve him or are serving God so he'll then think we are worthy of being blessed? Consider repentance. Is it because we're doing God a favor or because he's giving us his favor? The gospel says that forgiveness leads to love. Well, it's common in the world of sport and in the world of the church to shame people to try harder to be better. But that's not the gospel. Shaming our way to righteousness never works because what's at the root of shame? I should feel guilty because I had power to be better. And the root of that is we don't have power to be better without God working in us. The root of repentance is acknowledging we need the shepherd to come and find us in the thorn bush, cut us out, put us on his shoulder, and take us back to the flock. The reformers got it right. They understand that we love God because he first loved us. But do we live in that truth today? The Holy Spirit working through the law opens the eyes of people to the depths of their sin and the immediate danger of God's justice sending them to hell. Yet their terrified consciences also find comfort in the gospel which assures believers that his promise of free salvation in Christ is true for them personally. And this assurance in turn engenders in them saving faith which drives out all fear of rejection calming their turbulent hearts. Then, as believers begin to appreciate the unconditional love of God that will never leave them, their hearts are inflamed with grateful love in return. This new love for God will continually have to fight to restrain human nature's ongoing hidden tendency to self-gratification. But nevertheless, because of the renewing work of the Spirit, believers now have the necessary desire and ability to do so. Of course, we offend God, but we have hope of his ongoing work to bring to completion in Christ's presence what he has begun in our lives through coming to faith and being baptized. The heart of the Anglican understanding of the gospel can be summed up in one line. The un, only the unconditional love 
for sinners will inspire sinners to love God more than sin. May that be true in our lives and for Rainer and Ryder and Delaney going forward from this day forward. Amen.